Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 30 of Superman and Batman, a show featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. My name is Michael Bradley, I'm your host, and this is a show where we look at Superman and Batman team-ups from throughout the years. Now, on an average episode of the show, I will pick a random issue of World's Finest Comics, where the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight teamed up for more than 30 years. Doing so lets us look at a wide variety of stories from both the Silver and Bronze Ages. But because I'm a huge Superman fan, and a fan of Batman as well, I want this podcast to be about the world's finest heroes in all eras. Golden Age, Modern Age, even their non-comics pairings. So, throughout the course of the podcast, I've looked at a lot of Silver and Bronze Age world's finest comic stories, but we also spent an episode with the existing portions of the first radio team-up, we looked at a pseudo-imaginary story from 2006, and we even looked at a tale set loosely in the DC animated universe. But one era we haven't touched upon until now is the post-crisis DC universe. So last episode, we kicked off a series of shows which takes the podcast into the post-crisis DCU for the very first time, with a look at the first issue of a 10-issue Batman and Superman World's Finest Maxi Series that was published by DC Comics beginning in 1999. Now, just for a little personal history or, or backstory, I came heavy into comics when DC was fully entrenched in the post-crisis universe. I was aware of Superman and Batman before, you know, as I've said before, in this day and age, I don't think a child can grow up and not have at least a uh, cursory knowledge or, or a passing knowledge of who Superman and Batman are. Um, but as I was aware of the characters, you know, when I started learning more about their histories, it was pretty easy for me to quickly fall in love with their depictions and pretty much all their incarnations. But because the post-crisis universe was my gateway to that richer history, that post-crisis DCU is kind of like the comfy blanket version of the characters for me. Uh, it, it's the version I always come back to when, you know, at, at its core, I think that that is really my favorite version of both characters. Even though it wasn't necessarily my first exposure to either one, it's, it's just the one I'm most familiar with and the one that uh, that I like the best, I guess you could say. But I definitely want to spend some time on the show looking at those post-crisis team-ups between Superman and Batman. The problem when it comes to doing that is, due to the changing nature of comics in the 80s and 90s, more and more storylines beginning in that period are stretched across multiple issues. So just lumping those into the randomizer with issues of World's Finest Comics would result in a lot of episodes with incomplete stories. So I thought, why not just take a set of episodes every once in a while, you know, whenever the mood strikes, and look at one of those multi-issue post-crisis stories. And then when that's done, I can go back to the random issues. It seems like a happy medium between being a true index show and a true random show, though still very much in the spirit of random. But... When it came to post-crisis team-ups, I wanted to start off the show, or start off the look at those in a big way. And while this particular series isn't the first 
team up between the characters, or even the most critically lauded, it is one of my favorites, and one that I've been looking forward to rereading a whole lot since I started the show uh, in the early part of this year. And it also seemed like a natural place to begin, because it's a thorough examination of the two characters in a post-crisis context. And it looks at how their relationship and friendship uh, grows and changes through the first 10 years, revisiting or, or highlighting several important continuity beats for both characters along the way, but in a way that is pretty accessible even if you haven't read a whole lot of Superman and Batman comics published between 1986 and 1999. So last episode, we looked at the first issue, and this time we are continuing the story with a look at Batman and Superman, World's Finest, number two. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the issue was released March 17, 1999. It's got a May 1999 cover date and 32 pages for the price of $1.99, or 325 Canada. So we are back to the standard size and price point for this issue after the deluxe issue last time. Our cover is by Dave Taylor and Robert Campanella, with colors by Alex Sinclair, and it shows Batman perched on a gargoyle, ready to attack, as Superman looms in the sky in front of him with a stern glare. And this is an okay cover. Um, even though this is a different colorist than the first issue, once again, the cover coloring is striking. The red in Superman's cape really pops, but not so much that it diminishes Batman who is framed between that and the rich blue sky and the blue grays of the building. Um, It's just a really nice coloring job. Um, It's a very foreboding layout, or at least one that doesn't give a very hopeful outlook about how the two characters will interact. But, as we'll see when we get into the issue, these guys aren't friends yet, so it's a good, the cover is a good representation of that fact. And I do like the layout. We see Superman descending in front of Batman, and then Superman is reflected in a window behind Batman. So it kind of gives the illusion that there are two Supermans, or Supermen. Supermans? I don't know. Which, but, <laughs> which, which gives the cover kind of a uh, claustrophobic feel for Batman. So I guess the short version of all that is... While I don't necessarily care for what it portends for the story inside, I like the layout and I love the coloring, so overall, a good cover. Turning inside, our story is 22 pages, and credits are Carl Kessel Script, Dave Taylor Pencils, Robert Campanella Inks, Alex Sinclair Colorist Separator, Bill Oakley Letters, Joseph Illich Associate Editor, Darren Vincenzo Editor. And the story is titled, Year Two, A Tale of Two Cities. Nine years ago. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Superman and Batman are settled into their roles as heroes of their respective cities, but the death of Harrison Gray haunts them both. On the one-year anniversary of that fatal incident, the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight independently pay their respects at Gray's grave. Batman arrives first and tries to elude Superman, but the Man of Steel senses him and calls the Dark Knight from the shadows. 
The two discuss what happened and tensions arise as Superman criticizes Batman's use of fear as a weapon. Batman responds that a man who can change the course of mighty rivers and bend steel in his bare hands isn't a comforting thought either. The two heatedly discuss their cities and the threats they face. Superman ultimately suggests spending part of the night in each other's cities, which might help build understanding between them and maybe at least slightly make up for the lack of teamwork that led to Gray's death. They head to Gotham City first, where Superman immediately is put off by the city's horror movie-esque vibe. Batman disappears, soon arriving at an elite nightclub being held up by a group of henchmen who have formed their own crime ring. Batman goes to town on the crooks, and Superman arrives a few minutes later, stopping a hail of bullets fired in desperation by the leader of the henchmen gang. As Batman orders the victims to call police, Superman realizes his presence is making the victims feel very uneasy and makes a quick exit. Soon, Superman again chastises Batman for his fear-based tactics. Batman replies, explaining that since he's not faster than a speeding bullet, taking the Mr. Nice Guy approach could get him killed. The conversation then turns to why neither man joined the Justice League of America. For both, time was an issue. But Superman concludes that maybe one common ground they both have is that they both need colleagues, friends, someone who understands them. Batman quickly changes the subject, saying it's time to visit Metropolis. As they arrive, the clean and brightly lit city of tomorrow is as off-putting to Batman as his own hometown was to the Man of Steel. But the heroes quickly encounter Nodar, a villain claiming to be an escaped convict from the future who has a female hostage tied to the railroad tracks in front of an oncoming train. Batman leaps at Nodar, taking the criminal out, while leaving Superman to save the woman. With no time to fly her to safety and prevent the train from crashing, Superman leaps in front of the train, planting his feet into the rails. Metal grinds against metal, and the Man of Steel strains, but finally proves he is truly more powerful than a locomotive stopping the train mere feet from the terrified woman. As dawn breaks, Superman and Batman meet atop the Daily Planet. Superman confesses that he knows Batman was right and that his abilities do sometimes cause others to fear him. He even goes so far as to admit that that is the real reason he didn't join the JLA. They would be too powerful and people tend to fear things that are too powerful. Further, he says he works hard to make sure people trust him just as Batman works hard to make people fear him. Despite their differences, both men agree that they worked pretty well as a team, and Batman suggests that it become an annual event to help make up for what happened the previous year and honor the memory of Harrison Gray. End Year 2 So, another good issue. Um, not as strong as the last one, but still pretty good. And another interesting examination of Superman and Batman, even though it's not one I'm sure I completely agree with. But basically, this issue sets up the driving force um, for the series. You know, a reason for Superman and Batman to connect once a year, and a way to explore the characters and their relationship throughout that decade, or throughout the decade. But Inasmuch as the first issue focused on highlighting the differences between Superman and Batman, this issue seems to focus more on how 
Despite those differences, they have things in common as well on a very human level. The big thing I took away here, obviously, is that fear is a big part of both characters. Both people being afraid of them, as well as their own fears being not motivations per se, but a factor in the decisions and and choices they make. The thing I'm struggling most with, though, is that people shouldn't be afraid of Superman. Yes, all the arguments laid out in the book are logical. He's different, he can fly, he can bench press buildings, he can shoot death beams from his eyes, and realistically, that would scare people. But realistically, people don't fly. They can't bench press buildings. They don't shoot death beams from their eyes. And (laughs) that might seem like a really passive-aggressive way to shut down an argument, but what I'm getting at is these stories aren't about real people and have never pretended to be. They don't need to follow real-world logic in every respect. There is a difference between verisimilitude, thank you Richard Donner, and realism. And I think an important part of Superman is giving him the ability to make people feel at ease and comfortable by making them feel that he is in complete control as chaos swirls around them, even if he's not in complete control. And I like the idea that just by his manner and the way he acts and responds to people, he makes people feel that way. I talked uh, a few episodes ago about the helicopter scene from Superman the Movie. So I won't linger on that, but it is a stark contrast to the scenes in this issue. And I understand that not everyone would feel that way. Um, Some people would always be afraid or paranoid or leery of someone like Superman. But I'm I'm speaking in in more general terms. Um, One thing that does make it a little easier to give a pass to here is that this is still pretty early in Superman's career. It's been less than two years since he saved the space plane and made his big you know, debut in Metropolis. So we never got a lot of stories from this particular time of Superman's career. So maybe the number of people who are afraid of him is still a little higher. And as well, I, I, I've been thinking maybe Kessel is just playing up people's apprehensions about Superman in these, these moments, or, or at least how... Um, Superman perceives their reaction to him after Batman's comments earlier in the issue, you know, in order to ratchet up Superman's discomfort. It's not completely out of line or as bad as some other depictions that I've seen, but it still it 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 isn't one that I am completely on board with. Um, but still, you know, at the same time, that's not the whole issue, and it was a nice way to accentuate why Superman needs to be trusted just as much as Batman needs to be feared in order for both men to do their job. Um, I, 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 I did like that comparison because I, I think it's true to some degree. And a lot like the dialogue in the first issue that talked about you know Superman being what we strive to be and Batman uh, being what waits for us in the shadows, I think it's an easy trap to fall into to distill Superman and Batman into figures of comfort and fear. But that is part of the characters. Um, Not the only part, but a part. You know, um, they break it down pretty good in a couple of panels here in this issue. Batman is just a guy. He needs fear as a weapon to protect himself and others. 
But conversely, Superman is more than a guy. So, you know, he, he's uber-powerful and needs people to trust him in order to be most effective. So, even though the, the, the route that Kessel took to get there isn't something I necessarily agree with, I think the point he's trying to make is a good one. Uh, but the themes of fear and being afraid don't stop there, because in a similar vein, we get some exploration about what our heroes fear. At one point, both heroes seem to be you know, settling into their roles, but there's some unspoken doubts from both about how to be most effective and if they're going about things the right way, which all relates to what I'm talking about. But we also get some discussion about something else that our heroes fear, which is loneliness. After their time in Gotham, they discuss why each turned down the offer for Justice League membership. And Superman says, I wish I had joined, to have people to talk with, to have people to talk to, to share my problems and worries with, someone who would understand them, colleagues, friends. I think that's what all of us want, don't you? And while loneliness is a part of Batman's character, especially in the early years before Robin, I don't really think of Superman as a lonely character. But then again, once again, this is early for him in his career. And at this point, only three people knew Clark's secret. Ma and Pa Kent and Lana Lang. And Lana had not been a part of Clark's life for several years to this point in, in most depictions of this era. So even while Clark is close to his parents, as we even saw in the first issue when he called them, I can understand why he would be lonely at having no people around that can truly relate to what he's going through in the, in the trials and tribulations of superhero life. And I think that might be part of the reason that both heroes are so snippy with one another throughout the first issue and this one, and why their conversations get so tense so quick. They're both lonely and lashing out. Batman, throughout most of his post-crisis incarnation, is a guarded and, you know, to varying degrees, uptight individual. And at this stage, he and Superman are still getting to know each other. Superman is not aware about Bruce's parents, and I think that Superman, having grown up in such a loving and caring environment, just doesn't understand why Batman would intentionally push people away. And given that he himself is, um, I, I don't want to say desperate, but, but yearning for friends that he can truly be open and honest with, there's friction when he meets Batman, and then Batman acts like he acts. And then that causes Batman to lash out at Superman because Superman's unintentionally being a jerk and, you know, in Batman's defense, opening himself up could get him or, or even Alfred, which is the only thing that he has resembling family or a real friend at this point, killed. Um, and I'm not sure I really thought that deep into it in previous readings of this, but it's a take that I like in helping to explain more about why these two didn't hit it off immediately and why it did take a little while for their friendship to solidify. So this issue has been interesting because it's presenting a Superman that I am in a lot of ways not a fan of, but diving into it and really studying it, I'm able to see what Kessel's doing and I appreciate how he's crafting their friendship and, and uh, 
and so on because it's just not something we ever saw um, before this in in the post-crisis stories to this level of detail. Uh, Shifting gears, I want to talk a little bit about the villains that we see in the issue. One thing I really liked about Kessel's runs on Superman and Superboy were the quirky villains that he would introduce. They often weren't the big mega supervillains like Brainiac or, you know, the Riddler, um, but lesser known villains where he'd kind of take comic book cliches and put a little spin on them. Here we get the henchmen, which is a group of former henchmen of other villains, such such as the Joker and the Riddler and, and Calendar Man. And, and not only does it give us a reference point to some members of Batman's famous rogues gallery who are active, but you didn't need Luthor or a Two-Face as the villain in this issue because that would have only taken away from the character exploration that's, that, that is at the heart of this issue. There's going to be plenty of time for big-name villains and action scenes later. Right now, Superman and Batman just need a routine bad guy as an example of a routine night's work in each hero's city. Um, so giving us the henchman provides that, but it also gives us something a little more colorful than the standard you know, domino-masked bank robber. Uh, shifting over to Metropolis, we meet Nodar, who <laughs> claims to be an escaped convict from the 25th century. And he's abducted this woman who he claims, um, he says, you and I are going to have a child, Amy, the first in a long line that will eventually produce me in the 25th century. So he's under the delusion that he's his own ancestor, which is really weird. Uh, But he's got her tied to the railroad tracks because, according to him, when the train hits them, they'll live and thus prove his claims because if they died, it would be a time paradox. It's just completely insane. But what's interesting is that Nodar is actually a Golden Age Green Lantern villain who appeared in a few stories written by John Broom in the late 40s. And in those, he actually was a villain from the 25th century who traveled back in time to challenge Green Lantern and prove that his, you know, he was worthy as a criminal. So that was a, a uh, completely random but fun villain to pluck from DC Obscurity. Um, art-wise, this issue feels a little more solid than the first. Taylor seems to be getting more comfortable with drawing Superman, which is good. Uh, there, there's still a few inconsistencies from panel to panel, but it's it's a step up from last issue. Last issue. Um, as I explained last episode, this is Taylor's first time drawing Superman, and for some reason, some artists need a few issues to kind of get into a groove with the character and, and get him down. Uh, Taylor had drawn quite a bit of Batman before, but in the first issue, kept the character mostly in shadows, so I was happy that this time out we got more of Batman. Um, not necessarily out in the open, but more detailed to where he, he isn't just a a big mass of black with small highlights and two isolates. Oh, another thing I commented on last time was that Johnson's faces often seemed a little too exaggerated or cartoony. And again, that's just his style. It's not it's not to my taste, but that doesn't mean it's bad. Uh, but I was happy to see that it, it was toned back a little bit here and not quite as uh, 
off-putting to me who doesn't really like that style. Um, I am still a little disappointed that the cities don't get more to distinguish them. Maybe even more so in this issue where the cities the heroes inhabit played a bigger role in the story. Uh, now granted, the half-page uh, splashes on page 7 and 15 show two very different cities architecturally, but that's done more to contrast the dark and gloom of Gotham City with Superman's bright primary colors and then the never-ending lights of Metropolis with Batman's shadowy form. Um, it, makes, <laughs> it makes each hero stick out like a sore thumb in the other cities. But beyond that, I'm having trouble spelling it out in words, but I feel like there's more that could be done to make the cities feel like unique, living, breathing cities that they are. Um, but, you know, I don't know. It's not a huge issue, just something that, again, I would have liked to have seen to help further distinguish the worlds of Superman and Batman rather than only the characters themselves. Because the the worlds, you know, Metropolis and Gotham are big parts of both characters. Um, you, you can take each character out of their city and it's still the same character, but, you know, Metropolis and Gotham City are as, are nearly as well known as Superman and Batman themselves, so there's that. Uh, the good news is the coloring in the issue is absolutely beautiful, particularly the sunset in the opening scene as it gradually gets darker and darker as the conversation goes on, and then the final scene in the book as dawn breaks. It's just really, really amazing stuff. Uh, for my fellow continuity junkies out there, placing this in Superman's timeline is pretty easy. As originally written, there's a gap of about two years between issues four and five of Man of Steel, so this easily goes between those, even if you move the first issue after Man of Steel number four, which I don't think is necessary, as I talked about last episode, but it would still fit comfortably in there if you would do that. Um, Batman, on the other hand, is a little trickier. The Year 2 storyline had been retconned by the time this was published, and it seems a majority of other Batman stories set during this period of Batman's career were published after this, after this series. So it's hard to say that this particular issue takes place between you know this issue and that issue. Um, and making matters more complicated is that the book contains a reference to Two-Face. And it's my understanding that Batman The Long Halloween puts Harvey Dent's transformation in, into Two-Face as happening later than this. As I said last time, I'm okay with, you know, smaller continuity glitches as long as they get it mostly right. It's, it's almost impossible to have everything line up with so many writers and editors uh, telling stories over a period of a couple decades. This particular one's a little bit bigger of a gaffe than the other ones I've mentioned, but at the same time, Two-Face isn't a part of the story. He's just mentioned in passing, so, you know, whatever. It's not a big deal. We're going to have much more complicated and, and continuity issues in, in later stories in this series, so sometimes you just have to, to pick your battles. Uh, what we know for sure is that the story takes place after the formation of the Justice League of America. When the publication of the post-crisis continuity began, a lot of the Justice League's history remained, 
loosely intact, um, albeit with some pretty significant changes. Wonder Woman was replaced by Black Canary as a founding member, and Superman's and Batman's presence was minimalized, if not removed entirely. The earliest days of the League weren't told or, or retold immediately after Crisis, because you know within the stories, the League had been around about five years, and the Justice League books, much like the Superman books, were telling contemporary stories. So there was about there was like a five year gap in there that it was left up to later writers to fill in if they wanted to. Um, but a handful of comics throughout the 1990s did revisit those early days, and it was shown a few places, including Action Comics number 650, Superman: The Man of Steel Annual number four, and JLA Year One number seven that Superman was offered membership not long after the League came together. However, he turned down that offer, and with the in-story reason being that he felt his time wasn't his own and he had, you know, responsibilities elsewhere. And, you know, that's referenced here toward the end when Superman and Batman are, are talking at the, on top of the Daily Planet with Superman confiding in Batman that the, quote, real reason, unquote, was that he wouldn't is that he would make the league too powerful, which would cause people to distrust them. Uh, which I don't know. It, it feels like something that fits with this story, but maybe not necessarily other stories that were told. But you know, at the same time, I, I think as a whole, it works pretty well. Um, and I do like the fact that Superman would have that concern. Uh, because I think it shows how hard he does work to make sure that people feel safe, um, even at the expense to his own happiness, if that makes any sense. Uh, but as for Batman, throughout most of the post-crisis publishing history, I think it was understood by fans that a similar chain of events had happened with Batman. I know I assumed it for a long time, but Batman was never offered membership in those early days. And I love the moment here, and this goes back to the middle of the story right before their trip to Metropolis, but I love the moment here when Superman is chastising Batman for his scare tactics and asks him if that's why he didn't join the League because you know it would undermine the, this dark and scary public persona that he's cultivated. And there's a beat, and then Batman replies, think whatever you want. I wouldn't become a member of the JLA even if they did ask. Too busy. And Batman's all in shadows at this point, but from the dialogue, he seems really hurt that he was never invited to join the League. And I don't know if Batman not being invited to the League, you know, even if he, like Superman, wasn't going to be a member, was oversight or a conscious editorial decision, but I like that Kessel played it up here to just further drive home the fact that, or to, to further drive home the point about Batman's isolation. Ironically, Batman would eventually join the League years before Superman, but that's a story for another podcast or at least another episode of this one. All told, though, another good issue. You know, I, I did have some problems with this one on the level of Superman's depiction, but in the context of when this takes place, and what Kessel is trying to show with the story, I, I'm more willing to accept it. So right now, it's time for a break, 
and then we'll be back for a look at the book's other content and what else was on the stands. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics because, as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. A-Kids Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. This issue, along with the other nine issues of the series, has been reprinted in a trade paperback appropriately titled Batman and Superman World's Finest. And I recommend tracking that down. I think it's out of print, but you probably can find a used copy for not too much money on eBay or your local used bookseller. Ad-wise, not a whole lot to talk about. Uh, This is the 90s, so you'd think there'd be all kinds of amazing hilarity, but this particular issue is kind of dull in the ad department. Uh, Just your normal ads for video games and sports drinks and teen-centric clothing. Um, Probably the most standout thing is an ad for the Mod Squad movie starring Claire Danes, Omar Epps, and Giovanni Ribisi, which I and probably most of North America have forgotten existed. And then towards the back we have an ad for a bunch of Green Lantern-related books that were coming out. Uh, We have the Golden Age Green Lantern archives, a hardcover graphic novel titled Green Lantern Fear Itself, a trade paperback of five or six uh, Kyle Rayner stories, Green Lantern number 113, and then Green Lantern 80-page giant. Uh, We're going to go with number two on that. I'm not sure. It just says Green Lantern 80-page giant. So, way to go, ad department. Um, But now it's time to head on over to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com for a look at what else was on the stands. And because... During this set of episodes, we'll be looking at issues that came out in sequential months. Rather than me talking about the same era and many issues of the same titles and storylines for 10 episodes, I thought it would be fun in the next few episodes to get perspectives from other fans on what they were reading at the time and and what they see as highlights for the month. So with that said, I'm going to hand over the mic to my first recruit. He is a former guest of the show during the two-part composite Superman extravaganza, Mr. Bob Fisher. Elsewhere in the DC Universe for March 1999. Hi, everybody. You know, when Michael asked me to do this and assigned me March of 1999, I thought, cool, I was getting a lot of books in 1999. 
or I was getting a lot of books in the 90s. So I went to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. I'm looking at the page for March of 1999. And as I go down, I look at Batman, Anarchy. No, I don't know that. And Flash. I No, I don't. Hmm. And pretty quickly, I realized I had not read a lot of these books except for the Superman titles and the Superboy title. Uh, I was still doing Superboy because I guess... Uh, I like Tom Grummet artwork. But anyway, I was looking at the, the books and I thought I would, because I was getting a lot of books in the 90s. So I opened my personal database and looked at, uh, I couldn't just, I could search for March or I could search for 99, but I couldn't search for March 1999, uh, which is very weird. But I realized for the entire year of 1999, I only bought 57 comic books. To be more precise actually there are only 57 comics in my database with the release date of 1999 so that tells me that if i only got about 57 comics during the whole year probably it was the three or four uh superman titles plus a trade or two and that was probably it because Prior to 99 or 98, I was averaging over 200 plus comics a year, but 98 went down to 70 something, 99 down to 50 something, 2000, etc., etc. And then it picks up again in 2005, 2006, comes back to its, not to its high, but back into the comics. But anyway, I digress. March of 99. So as I look through these, other than the Superman comics, uh, the things that really jump out at me, which make me think, okay, I need to do some uh, backbend diving here to find some of these because I really do want to read these now and pick some of them up. I'm sure they're in trades by now. Some of the things that jump out are that some of the writers who were writing for the month of March 1999 for DC Comics helped launch the New 52, including Grant Morrison and uh, James Robinson. Also back then, writing a couple of comics, was Mark Wade in the late 90s. And those two names alone, Mark Wade and James Robinson, as I mentioned, and Grant Morrison, what were they writing? And as you find out, these are things that I need to just start picking back up and getting into, like I mentioned. It's because I'm a big fan of the Golden Age characters. And it looks like the late 90s uh, was another kind of revival of the Golden Age characters. And I'll give DC credit, actually, for that, that it seems every decade they attempt to uh, revive the Golden Age characters. And sometimes it's a success and sometimes it's not. And some of these books that I would love to get a hold of now that uh, came out in this month of March 99 from James Robinson, again, who I think has a great handle on... on uh, the Golden Age characters and Mark Wade and uh, a couple of other guys, Grant Morrison. And uh, look at the titles. National Comics, number one. All-Star Comics, number one. Sensation Comics with Wonder Woman, which has now again been revived again digitally as part of the, uh, uh, I think every Thursday now on Comixology, Sensation Comics featuring Wonder Woman for 99 cents. I'm sad they got rid of the Adventures of Superman for 99 cents every Monday. But at least now we do have, there's Wonder Woman and uh, Smallville is still good. But anyway, 99, back to 99. 
But anyway, a lot of these golden age things are popping out. And I'm thinking, okay, now I need to go back and look at these because some of these I remember reading, but I don't seem to have them for some reason. They're not showing up in my database. Other ones I don't remember at all. And then some of them were collected later in James Robinson's Golden Age, which is a terrific series. Also a name that pops up in March of 99, along with James Robinson on a lot of these Golden Age comics, is David S. Goyer, whose name has uh, some controversy, I guess, around it. Some people love, some people hate the uh, Man of Steel, which he had a writing um, credit in. So a lot of these names from the late 90s are still around in D.C. today in one shape or another. And here's something that really jumped out at me that as soon as I finish this, I will be trying to find because there is a Marvel crossover in March of 1999 that I did not know existed until I started to do this. And it's Superman and the Fantastic Four, number one, March of 99. So now I have to go find out, was this one issue? Was it multiple issues? Uh, I know Superman and Hulk and Superman and, and uh, um, uh, Spider-Man and several other crossovers, but I did not know that there was a Superman and Fantastic Four crossover. So now that's something else that I've added to the wish list, the Superman Fantastic Four crossover. So what do I come away with from Elsewhere in the DC Universe for March of 1999, it looks like it's a good month for the rebirth and the restart and the recontinuation of some good Golden Age stories uh, from the likes of James Robinson, Mark Wade, and Grant Morrison. And again, some of the great titles to look at, All-Star Comics, Adventure Comics, All-American Comics, National Comics, Sensation Comics, Starman, Sandman Presents Lucifer, uh, Smash Comics, Dr. Midnight, Star Spangled Comics. So it looks like March of 1999 was a better month for comics than I gave it credit for originally. So, thanks for inviting me, Michael. It's been a blast as always. I enjoy it. See you next time, everybody. And thank you very much, Bob. Folks, be sure to check out Bob's podcast, Superman Forever Radio, at supermanforever.com. And if you didn't hear the two-part episode 25 of this show, where Bob joined me for a look at the first composite Superman story, don't miss that either. Bob is a longtime fan of Superman and Batman and just comics in general, and he has a lot of really good insights into not just the Man of Steel, but comic books as a whole. So be sure to check out his show. Once again, the URL is supermanforever.com. But that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll be looking at issue number three of Batman and Superman World's Finest. As the Man of Steel gets put behind bars of steel. When Superman is locked up inside Arkham Asylum. As always, be sure to send your thoughts and comments on the show or the issue to michael at greatcrypton.com or you can leave a note at the website. I really do love hearing from listeners and I would really like to hear what you think about this series. But thank you very, very much for listening and I will talk to you all next time. Goodbye. Mm
by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. This episode's closing music was Marina and the Diamonds, Fear and Loathing, 
from her 2012 album, Electra Heart. If you'd like to get the song or the album, the best way to do that is to head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com banner. Pick up a CD, digital download, or pretty much anything else your heart fears, loathes, or desires. See, see what I did there? Fear. Yeah, you get the picture. And Two True Freaks gets a little cut from every purchase. It won't cost you anything extra, but does help ensure a steady stream of fine Two True Freaks-related podcasts. 